If I were to distill the four ingredients of writing and the four reasons people come for writing coaching, it starts like this. Memory, imagination, observation, questions about the world and ourselves in it. We come to the blank page to work stuff out and in doing so to connect. I want this podcast to honour and explore that with a different writer sometimes more than one writer, and sometimes more than one genre, each episode. We'll be talking about the memory, the observation, the imagination that joins the bits together, or the questions about the world and ourselves that led those writers to go on those journeys. At the end of that discussion, there'll be a writing exercise and a theme or question that is relevant to that, that says now you, you lead. Neil Gaiman talks about the compost heap, that things always come back in a different form to the stimulus that went in. And that's what I want this to be. It's a place to exercise your memory, your imagination, and your sense of your right to those things. Just like the physical gym, if you turn up once a year, (laughs) then the differences don't happen quite as quickly. But if you bring in good writing habits every day, at least every week, regularly in your life, then you do see the difference. And the writing confidence doesn't feel like confidence. It feels like focus. It feels like interest. It feels like curiosity. I'm Rachel Knightley. Welcome to the Writer's Gym. Jennifer Stile is an award-winning author who lives in Uzbekistan, England and France. Her recent novel, Exile Music, explores an overlooked slice of World War II history, following Jewish musicians who fled Vienna in 1939 to seek refuge in the Bolivian Andes. It won grand prize in the Islands 2020 Book Awards, the Multicultural and Historical Novel International Book Awards, and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Lesbian Fiction Award, the Bisexual Book Award and the Annie Award. Her previous novel, The Ambassador's Wife, inspired by her own kidnapping experience in Yemen, won the 2013 William Faulkner William Wisdom Creative Writing Competition Best Novel Award, the 2016 Philip McMath Post-Publication Book Award, and was a finalist for the Bisexual Book Award and the Lascaux Novel Award. She is also the author of The Woman Who Fell From The Sky, a memoir about her tenure as editor-in-chief of a newspaper in Yemen. Wow. Okay, so now we have to talk only about official things. Nah, we can get there as we get there. Why this has suddenly appeared. It's something that I've wanted to explore with people that I talk to for such a long time because every working day for me, in some way or at some level, questions come back to, am I allowed to? And they may not be phrased like that, but at their heart, they really do. So for some people, it does come up as a question or a, or a statement, I, I can't because it'll hurt so-and-so, or I can't because so-and-so would disagree. And that is not just memoir, that is not just fiction, that is all over the shop. And in terms of what I say to people about that when I'm coaching... I actually heard myself say this for the first time when I was talking to a painter because I said to her, we've got our observations of the world, we've got our memories, we've got our imagination, and we've got our questions about the world and ourselves. And if you were a painter, you wouldn't think twice about were you allowed to mix this colour with that colour. You've got all of them. This is what I want to explore is how we get around our own, the blocks that we, if we're lucky, acknowledge as blocks, notice as blocks. And how we relate to that and how we let ourselves explore our stories. That's really interesting because I don't think it's just internal right now. I mean, right now, I am being told quite explicitly what I can and cannot write. Um, And that is, I I just cannot write if I can't write freely and whatever I want to write. It just, it puts a full stop to my imagination when people say, well, you can write this character and not this character. And you can write it from this point of view, but not this point of view. And I'm like, but I write fiction. I'm making it up. And I do a lot of research, aren't I? You know, anyway, so I'm finding this quite frustrating that that's coming from the outside rather than from the inside. 
I also think there's a bit of a gender issue, you know, a gender difference here, because I feel like my experience of male writers is they feel like they are entitled to the National Book Award and they don't understand why they haven't won it yet, unless they have. Whereas women feel like they're lucky to have something published in a tiny little literary magazine and are always thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just so lucky uh, I did it. And, you know, the men are walking around thinking, well, the world owes me this. And so they end up, there's a use to that sense of entitlement. Like they send their stuff to the New York Times instead of something smaller. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm talking too much probably, but those are- isn't it ironic that that is what you said at the end of that? I'm probably oh, talking too much. Yes, right. Words I have never heard come out of a male author's mouth ever, ever, ever. And why should they? Why should they come out of any mouth? Because when I'm working with people who, whether it's the MA at Roehampton or whether it's one-to-one coaching or group coaching on Zoom or in person, so much of it comes back to what somebody else might think right and that probably talking too much it does beg the question according to and if it's not according to yourself then you're exploring thoughts and whether that's out loud or on the page right right we have the right yes yes and it's 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 important to believe that when you sit down and write i mean there's a there's a lot of difficult stories that i sit down to write and part of me thinks, oh, this is a pretty risky story. What are people going to think of me? And then the other part of me is like, but this is what I want to write. This is what I feel compelled to write right now. This is what feels important. So I just write it. But there is that initial moment where I think, uh. and I've also, you know, I mean, I wrote when my first book, my first book was a memoir. And at first, my editor had said to me, could you write a chapter about your romantic history so we could get an idea of your kind of relationships before we, you know, in, in a way of getting to know you before you eventually meet your husband. And so I wrote that chapter and was immediately told, oh, we can't include this because it'll make you too unlikable because you've, you've had too many bad relationships with um, the wrong people. You've slept with too many people. You've been falling in love too much. I mean, it was just all, you're just too much. Could you just have a reasonable number of sexual partners? Whereas does anyone ever say that to Paul Theroux? When the human condition means male. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm really fed up with them being the default sex and, and yes anyway and the thing is that any change does not come through somebody else saying renouncing because that is consciously impossible it comes through us treating ourselves as pure humans and this is something that i'm i'm going to keep saying memoir it is obviously equally true of fiction and everything else but when people have a memory that they want to draw on i look at something like the ambassador's wife and i can see in there that that story needs to be told in a way that feels i guess more accessibly true than maybe some of some of my coaches or some of my students might be feeling about things they've experienced where it's not quite that please god unusual i'm talking about kidnap here let alone being an ambassador's wife come to think of it you know the, both of these things are more unusual whereas when there is a memory that somebody has had an argument with their parent sibling whether they've broken up with somebody whatever the experience they're drawing on is i guess we're always going to find a reason to tell ourselves i can't use that or i can't look over there and how was it for you with that book or just in general bit of both so i keep thinking when you're talking about things that we feel like maybe we shouldn't be writing is intriguingly i have never written a thing about my family of origin nothing i love them but i feel like i can't write anything about them partly because i had a a happy childhood and i don't really have a lot of reasons to complain i mean if i'd had a terrible childhood and mean parents i think it would be easier to write about them in a way um because i'd be like they deserve it but right now i just i don't know i i know my sister is a private person i feel like i don't really want to 
put that essay out there right now. I might change my mind about it. It's a pretty good essay, <laughs> but yeah. Is there something I, about the story still happening versus the story having happened? I just wonder because I'm, I'm, I don't know, but I'm guessing kidnap is not the easiest thing to write about when it has happened to you. But you can, although trauma revisits us, the actual incident occurred and then had occurred. I wonder if there's something in that. That's interesting. I actually, strangely enough, find that my most traumatic experiences are the easiest to write about, which may sound strange, but I feel because writing is my way of coping with life and the world and including trauma. And so when I was kidnapped, the first thing I was asked to do, fortunately, because I probably would have done it anyway, is to just write a detailed account of what happened. So the British Foreign Office said, we need to know exactly what happened to you. Please write a description of everything that happened as detailed as possible. So I had that really early on. And I thought, okay, I now have this great kidnapping scene. What could I do with it? And so I started <laughs> with that. And then that whole novel was a series of what ifs. So the rest of the novel did not happen to me. It, it takes all kinds of different directions in my life. It does take place in a context I know well. It's an American married to a British diplomat. They have a kid. Although when I was kidnapped, I was pregnant. And when my character was kidnapped, she had a toddler at home. So, so that was diff different. She's a visual artist as opposed to a writer and, and what happens to her is not what happened to me. So that, that was the starting point, but I feel, I mean, recently, as you know, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer about a year ago, exactly. And my first thought was, I do not want to write a cancer memoir. I, I am uninterested in writing about cancer. There's plenty of people doing it. They, we don't need mine, but then. The first thing I did was sit down and start writing about cancer because what else was there to do? <laughs> it just seemed the only sane response. And also, you know, as anyone who's had any sort of medical difficulty knows, hilarious things happen in hospitals along with the tragic and kind of including them both in, in the same tale scene is interesting because I feel like life is never completely serious, even in the midst of death there is the most hilarious moments. There are the most hilarious moments. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I've found a lot of humor along the cancer pathway, <laughs> which has helped me to get through it, but also just the act of sitting down and writing helps me get through it. So I feel, it's funny, I have to teach a workshop on writing to save your life um, next month. And so I'm thinking a lot about this because I feel like I do that every day. Does it feel like that every day? Yeah. I mean, there are some days when I was going through chemo, the first week after chemo, I couldn't get out of bed or function really very much. I couldn't get down the stairs. I couldn't get to my computer. And so I didn't write for those days. And I felt like I had cerebral constipation. <laughs> mm. My brain needs to be able to get things out of it every day so that I can relax. Um, otherwise, it piles up in my brain, even just the things I do, even just my journal, you know, because I want to keep track of what has happened to me over the past year because it's been weird and interesting to me anyway. So, but if I don't write, if I, if I go a few days without writing my journal, which of course I do, there are days I don't write. There are days I can't write because of circumstances or I'm in the hospital or whatever. But the second I'm well enough, I feel like I, I have... I have to write or, you know, I don't think any kind of constipation is good for you. <laughs> I know I'm a nicer person when I've written than when I haven't. Yes, yes. And I'm a better parent when I've written too. I feel, again, guilty because I'm female for taking time away from my child. But then when I see my child, I'm much cheerier and I can be fully present with them. The emotional constipation metaphor is quite accurate there isn't it because there's a part of you that knows it needs to go into that room and doesn't know when it's going to need to but it needs to whereas when you've done that you can be fully present can't you yes exactly exactly um if there's all these words 
I mean, I used to, I used to be a runner and when I was running the words would pile up in my head because running's a great way because your brain's empty and you're not focused on anything else like a screen. Um, the words would kind of pile up. And by the time I got home, I had to like, you know, race for the nearest scrap of paper just to make notes. So I didn't forget stuff. Um, until <laughs> I finally carried a piece of paper in my pocket and then I realized, oh, hey, I've got an iPhone. It probably records anyway. <laughs> But it's it's funny that you bring that up because the reason that I named what was Green Ink Writer's Gym that for this purpose is now the Writer's Gym, I would joke to people that it was exactly like gym membership, that if you paid your however many hundred quid or quid in January and then didn't show up till July, then obviously not much is going to have changed. Whereas if you do a little bit every day and it becomes part of the normal that you choose, the new normal that you you select and you maintain, mm -hmm. then that's a whole other thing. And it and it is with writing it. I, I do find it is like lifting weights in that what what used to feel heavy, a weight that I now own that I remember the first time I lifted it felt heavy. If I lift it now, you know, you sort of feel almost don't try this at home, but like you can spin it on your finger. It's so light, <laughs> obviously, not literally. And how your perspective changes when something becomes just what happens, what happens every day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's funny because you do need to set. I think, you know, a lot of people think they have to wait for that magical period of three or four hours with nothing else to do to just <laughs> magically open up. But those that never occurs as you probably know, like magical three and four hour chunks of time don't just appear. And so you just have to sometimes settle for less. And so if, I mean, last, last night I came home after spending a whole day, you know, at various hospital appointments and I got nothing done. I felt really frustrated, but I did one small thing last night, like one small little piece of work that made me feel entitled to relax. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, um, was remembering in David Bowie's final album, there's there's an image of if I never see the English evergreens I'm running to, it's nothing to me. It's not about arriving. It's about whenever you are thinking about the things that you are trying to create, that you are moving closer to it. And that always helps me to remember that when I go, no, don't assume that these five minutes are wasted. Write in these five minutes, write in this one minute. There's a reason the universe gave you a notebook on your iPhone for when you go to the loo. It all adds up. You can absolutely keep adding that. God, there are so many toilet metaphors today. I'm going to throw one more in. Are you ready for one more? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All right, go the, on. So the vomit draft, which right. I'd been talking right. about for years in terms of, and I, I don't remember who originally invented this, but obviously it's it's a it's a very clear way of saying to people, it's not about being precious. It's not about making sure it all lands in the right place. It's just bleh, get it out. Yeah. And I was, I was talking to a client recently. We were talking about how there is that moment where it is just you and the toilet. And all you can do is vomit. You can't think I'll just go and do a load of washing and then I'll vomit. Or I've got to make two phone calls, uh, go and buy coleslaw and then I'll have a moment and I can vomit. That is not how vomiting works. And that made me um, take the vomit draft to a whole new place that it, it's not just about getting it out. Right. It's about not waiting for that perfect time, as you say, or not, not thinking yeah. it has to be this number of hours. Sometimes you just have to go and there it is. Yep. I mean, there is no perfect time. You know, it's it's where, in fact, I think I never feel inspiration until I'm writing. Until you have perspiration. I, right. I have to get in the damn chair. And that is the hard part, is getting in that chair or standing desk or whatever it is you're using. But, I mean, that for me is the hardest part. Like, once I'm there, then the words, then I'm happy. I'm happy writing away. But, like, when I'm away from it, you know, other things distract me or come up or whatever. But it is a it is a question of just um, making yourself get to the chair when when you can get to the chair. I mean, as often as you can possibly get to the chair um, in a realistic way. Um, it's funny. I think of I think that's a great metaphor for first drafts because it is indeed what they are. Um, and I feel like the art comes after. Like the first drafts are just figuring out what the book is. You're like, what is this book? I'm going to figure it out in the writing of it. Blah, 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 blah. Here it all T is. Telling the story to yourself as Pratchett had it. Yeah, Terry. yeah. Yeah, and then once you have that, or at least in my case, every writer's different, you know, then I go in and I rewrite it about 50 million times on average. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
what I say, this is a different metaphor for those of you who are too queasy to think about vomiting all the time, but um, yep. <laughs> I say my first act, I'm generating clay. I'm a, I'm making clay and I'm just, you know, I'm like a clay machine and it's all just clay. And then once it's all out on the slab, then I, I turn it into art and I make it mm. into sculptures and I tear off a little piece here and I stick another little piece on here and I, it's my little sculptural metaphor for that. Yeah. That, that is that is much more tasteful than the three uses of the toilet that I've come out with so far. <laughs> I brought up constipation, so. Fair. Yeah, yeah it, it was definitely teamwork, wasn't it? But yeah. that is that is so true about getting the clay there to begin with before you can start the refining process. Um, somebody commented on one of my videos the other day, a um, couple of days ago, uh, write without judgment, edit without mercy. And one of my coaches actually told me who that was by today, and I've now forgotten this. I know his first name's Tom Allingdon, something like that. I need to check that, but that can that can be a note afterwards. But I think that is the thing, isn't it? It's it's knowing that you can't be squeamish about getting it out in whatever form, and that and trusting that the refinement process will then come about. Yes, yes, and and it's you know like everyone, it's hard to cut certain things from drafts. Um, but what I do, and I think a lot of other writers probably do this, is everything I cut, I put in a folder that say cuts from this because I'm so sure that I'll want to put it back, right? I'm, I'm so sure that I will want to put it back in at some future date, but I'm taking it now, out now because either my editor asked me to or I thought or I needed to cut some words or whatever. Um, so I have all these folders, you know, for all of my books, I have folders of everything that was ever cut have I ever once put something back in a draft? Who? Never. 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 Not Never. even once. I mean, you know, they're, they were just gems, I'm sure, but they just didn't belong where they were or in that story or in that book. Or you know? I feel like there's something in that process in terms of that initial thought that we all have about certain things, they might be different things to different people. I can't use that because it would upset this person or because that person would disagree. But actually, that's where the faith in knowing you can take it out. You can put it through the fictionalization machine. So you are left with the emotional truth, but the literal truth is gone. That is so important, isn't it? Because you can then, once you can see the whole story, once you can see that whole arc, you can make a more, a more genuine decision about whether it belongs in there and is necessary or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly frees me up to kind of cut without mercy because I have so many different drafts of everything. I'm like, well, I've saved that in a previous draft. So I can just, I mean, I'm doing that right now with a short story, actually. I'm cutting out like two thirds of the plot line and just focusing on one. And um, I like the rest of it, but it'll have to belong someplace else. And those places, it's the trust that they'll come as well, that you will be writing future stories and that ideas and snippets that are coming about now they can find a home later they don't all have to be shoved in here like so many non-free range chickens and not have enough space they will have something later yeah yeah i mean right i still have i mean i haven't used any of mine but i i live in hope that one day i will make use of all my scraps that are composting right now and they will become fertile ground I just Absolutely. can't stop with the exciting metaphors. Today. Well, that, that's that's the Neil Gaiman compost heap, isn't it? So I was so happy when yeah. I discovered that one. But it's it's just so right that you have, like I, I have my lovely quotes books that I've been doing for years that were commonplace books 200 years ago. And, you know, you, you write down the line of dialogue you heard and this happens and that happens and it all goes in. And it's, it's sort of like a diary because it makes you remember what you've been doing, but it's also like a photo album that you don't mind sharing it with people. And they're absolutely lovely. But what I do find is that when they do make their way into one of my, my pieces, it's not word for word. It's certainly not personality for personality. They, they, they do go through that composting process. They do grow into something new. So, so tell me, so you have a special notebook? Is that how you do it? <laughs> right. So when I was 15, I thought my friend Keith had invented this. Turns out, no, they've been happening for several centuries. But he had his quotes book. And then I started doing a quotes book. And I have been doing that now for most of the years I have been on this planet. 
and they are lovely and you can pick them up and look at them and see these previous sort of eras of where you were living and who you were hanging out with and what was important to you at the time it's lovely I absolutely adore them yeah that's a great idea especially you know sitting around in hospitals you overhear some pretty interesting stuff yesterday I was next to a woman who was clearly not inhabiting the same planet I was I can't remember her words because I was trying to do a crossword puzzle at the same thing at the same time and I felt terrible because she was she'd been sitting there in a wheelchair waiting four hours for hospital transport to take her to where she was going in four hours Mm. anyway I got off topic actually I have an essay coming out okay I can tell this bit of dialogue this is yeah coming out so when I was in the hospital for surgery I was in a ward with three other women and one of those women um, only spoke Spanish and Portuguese and no one else in the ward spoke either language and only none of the nurses spoke the language either there's one nurse's assistant who did and she would get an interpreter for things like results of her surgery or to sign consent forms but she didn't have an interpreter for the entire rest of the day which meant that anytime she was in pain or she was nauseous or she had to go to the loo or she felt like she was going to vomit like she couldn't communicate that to the nurses. So I happened to speak a little Spanish, having lived in Bolivia for four years. So I speak passable Spanish. And once she figured that out, she was talking to me all the time and I was able to help her communicate with nurses, um, which is great. Only I was pretty, um, I was in a lot of pain myself. So it was kind of hard to work while while trying to recover. But, and I just remember one night, and this is where we get to the dialogue. One night I was, drifting off to sleep or trying to, when a nurse came over and she goes, Jennifer, Jennifer, you speak Spanish, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, okay, can you explain to this lady that I need to put this medicine up her butt? I mean, it wasn't a phrase that I actually was familiar with in Spanish, but I managed to communicate it and the medicine was put up the butt successfully. But I mean, those are the kind of conversations you just can't anticipate until you are having them. And to be woken up to serve as an interpreter at all, let alone to be served to serve as an interpreter for that. Crikey. <laughs> yeah. Good times. Good hospital. times. You you have had quite the year. And I ironically, we started this conversation talking about kidnap being difficult and you talking about you didn't want to write about cancer. But I guess what I'm hearing is that our lives need to flow freely through our conversation, our writing. Yeah. And it's often, it's often like the darkest little corners that you, that I feel compelled to drill into. What's this dark little corner about? Why is it dark? What's going on in there? I just want to, so I, that's, I guess what I tend to do. And I, I guess it's also a way of making sense of the world. I, you know, like we all do. I want my cancer experience to have some meaning because I didn't have a choice whether or not to get cancer. So since I'm going to have cancer, I I have to create some sort of meaning out of it to make it worthwhile, Mm -hmm. all the suffering. And so I think, you know, I was so excited when I sold my first essay because I thought, yes, I have turned cancer into art. I did something with it. Um, I wrote a piece that I never would have written had I not had cancer. So like, that's just one piece. But others are coming, unfortunately, for the world. But um, I just finished a, a story, actually, called Dead End Vagina. Um, Do you tell? Uh, well, it kind of, I, I just basically, I used that phrase in a conversation with a doctor. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, that has to be the title of a short story. So then I had to write a story to go with the title Dead End Vagina. But it came up because when you have... So when you have ovarian cancer and they take, they take out a lot of stuff like your ovarian, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, your uterus, your omentum, peritoneum, maybe other random organs, depending on, you know, how much is there anyway. So I was very curious about what, how the vagina ended it once the uterus was no longer there because I've always thought of the vagina as this little path up by the uterus and, Um, There was at least some kind of destination point in your body for whatever. (laughs) And, and then I, I said, well, so 
once everything's gone, like, where does my vagina open into like my pancreas or like when I'm having sex, what, what happens? Where does, where does the penis go? You know, I, you know, you, these are the questions that again, you don't expect to come up. And they said, oh, we just, um, we sew up the vagina at the top. We just sew it up. And I'm like, so it's a sheath, like a condom or a, I feel like a blow up sex doll. You know, it was kind of my first, my first thought. Like that's what I felt like after a vein cancer surgeon. I'm suddenly a blow up sex doll. Um, and so my doctor, my surgeon, is very kind of deadpan. Um, she's like, "I that's uh, not how I would put it, but right, yes, that's what we're doing." <laughs> so anyway, so I wrote it. I mean, some of the some of that dialogue is in the story. So it's I think it's quite a funny little story, but it's also kind of about real trauma and, you know, how our identity is linked to our ability to have sex or our sexuality. And when, when you lose that either briefly or permanently or, or whatever, or it just becomes different, you know, it throws us for a loop, like, well, all right, what do I still, am I still female? Like, I guess I still breast, but breasts don't make people female, right? It's just, I don't know. It's it's just I don't know. You can go spinning around in your mind. Forever. Yeah, and you and you do spin around because anything that is to do with your identity in any way, when that alters, we do go into who am I tr- places, whether that's physical, mental, life circumstances of other kinds. Yeah. It's absolutely gonna happen. And just in saying that, for me, that kind of answers the question of why we have a kind of. I don't want to say responsibility, but why, if you can get around your own blocks and share your life experiences, fictionalized completely, memoir completely, or literally anywhere in between, it is a good thing because every time you do that, you are helping somebody else not feel so alone about some circumstance or other. And that is one, you know, why, why do we write to connect? Yeah. Yeah. I'm yes. I mean, I, I, that is definitely why, you know, my, that's where my nonfiction pieces come from is a desire to connect. And also there's a lot of isolation in, I mean, I have other friends with cancer, but I don't really have a friend in real life with ovarian cancer, which is rarer um, and more deadly than other gynecological cancers. And so it would be nice to have, to feel a connection with someone like that, but I guess I'm kind of veering off topic again. I have a slightly off topic question that that raised in my mind, if that's okay. You just, you you said just now that connection is why you write your nonfiction. Does fiction feel different to that? Well, the only reason I said that is it was going through my mind that at least with the last book I wrote, Exile Music, I wrote that because I had stumbled upon a story that I felt really needed to be told and hadn't been, or at least not told as fully as it might be. And so I was compelled to write to honor that story, really. It didn't even really feel optional. So I suppose I was also writing to connect with the survivors who might recognize um, the, the context in which I was writing um but i feel maybe it's just that fiction is less overt about it i mean of course you always want to connect with a reader right so there's always some kind of connection but with with the kind of essays i've been writing it's like i'm kind of bisecting my rib cage and opening it up and saying okay here are my most broken parts um and and because i find that when you're vulnerable People tell you things and the the relationship gets closer. Because um, when you make yourself vulnerable to someone, they then find it easier to relate to you, I think. Um, Absolutely. And connect with you in a, in a more real way. Um, whereas with fiction, it's not about me. Certainly in my last book was nothing about me, but I wanted people to connect with my characters and what they were going through. And her, and her relationships, I don't just mean romantic, but romantic included, something that really struck me about that was the way that people and how we relate to people, how that changes over the course of our lives and how 
without without any spoilers i'm i'm trying to do this absolutely spoiler free that there will be decisions that you make in your career in your romantic life in this in that that are am i honoring myself in this era or how i was at a previous time and in a way i i guess maybe that in itself sort of answers my question that fiction fiction will always be other versions of ourselves we have to take some of ourselves and put it in all those characters and this is when the emotional truth does go deeper than the literal because in literal we live our one life and a bunch of very different things can happen in it but not everything that could have happened and there are other versions of us that we are able to explore and that can connect with other people in other ways perhaps absolutely no i agree with that well first of all <laughs> When I think about Exile Music or The Ambassador's Wife, like those characters feel like something that happened, like people who lived, you know, people I, I knew and spent time with. And I remember when my daughter read the first part of Exile Music, which is about the friendship between these two girls, and she related to it so strongly, like she couldn't stop crying because she didn't have a friend like that. And she wanted a friend mm -hmm. just like Annalisa is, but she, you know, was convinced by Annalisa, like that she wanted that friend. And so I think in writing that story, I mean, it started both from meeting sur Jewish survivors who ended up in Bolivia, but also from watching my daughter and thinking, how would my daughter is very busy creating an imaginary world. And, and I thought, oh, um, that's something that a, a young child growing up in Nazi Austria would need to have to escape the very scary things going on all around her. And so part of it came from my daughter and then part of it was imagining not my daughter growing earlier, older, but someone like her growing older. And, and it's just by starting with that relationship with Annalisa, that relationship became one of the, for me, one of the strongest lines of the book, um, even though they're not, they're not together for most of the book, but there was that pull always between them, I think. Yes. And yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, I mean, for me, it was just research allowed me to imagine things. So research was critical because I, I can't tell you how much time I spent looking up the ships like I bought postcards of the ships that they would have traveled on from Italy to South America. And I wanted to see pictures of the cabins and I wanted to know like what kind of food they ate and how they were treated and I had to research all that. And that allowed me to imagine better imagine myself. I went to Genoa because I needed to be able to imagine what they're, I need to be able to, to see what they saw as they pulled away from Europe for the last time. And because I've seen what they saw when they pulled away from Europe for the last time, it's very real to me. I know exactly what they saw because I was there. I went to Genoa and I took a boat out and looked back at the, <laughs> looked back at the port. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, th I guess that's a little bit about how can research and imagination kind of play off of each other. Um, and, and my research really allowed me to inhabit these characters. And I've read a lot of memoirs, every memoir I could get my hands on from this period, especially people who lived in Bolivia. And, um, and I, I bet that, that the edit without mercy side of that, of, of right without judgment, edit without mercy, given how much research there was and given how deep the pull to the, the, the impetus to, to do justice as if we can to everything that happened, I'm guessing editing that down from the research and, and the experiences that you'd gone out for was that hard. <laughs> It sounds yeah. like it could be. Yeah, I mean, it was hard figuring out what I needed to research and what I didn't. I mean, I did so much more research than I used. That is always the case. You always kind of over-research um, because, in, at least in the beginning, you're not entirely sure which things you need, which things your plot will need. And so I had to research and write at the same time um, because I needed to know what the plot required me to research, but also research gave me new ideas for plot and they kind of worked together. So I had to kind of them simultaneously. Um, so I started writing 
before I started research, but I couldn't get beyond the first scene of the two girls. And then I had to know what the room looked like and where, where they were and what their parents did for a living and all that. Um, and I sometimes get very frustrated because I couldn't write more than a couple sentences without having to go look something up. You know, like, how do you work a kerosene stove in Bolivia at altitude sort of thing? Um, oh, no, so but that, there, there, would, there would be when you have the Google search of a writer in progress. That's always yes. fascinating. Yeah, they're like, okay, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about kerosene stoves. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, but I think um, when I when I was, I had to be careful because there's not much material about Boliv the Bolivia part of the story. There's, there's hardly anything about the Jewish diaspora in La Paz, right? They don't have any electronic archives that I can look up in Bolivia, et cetera. I had to actually talk to live people. However, in Austria, there's so much material about the Holocaust and so much research material that I couldn't in my natural lifetime go through it all. So when I was in Vienna, I had to, I wasn't there for very, I was just there for a couple of weeks and I had to be really specific, like, which things do I really need to know? I had to know where Orly lived. I walked around Vienna until I found a house that looked like hers, took a photo of it. Actually, I took a photo of a lot of doorways because I wanted to really know what her doorway looked like and, and did all that. Um, but I had to make sure that it was all research that was targeted towards what I needed to know. like because I didn't need to know everything. And I wasn't going to try to capture the entire build up to the Holocaust, just the pivotal moments that propelled the plot of my book. That makes so sense. Did, oh God, yeah, but this, it does show, doesn't it? That discipline where you have to, they talk about phrases like kill, kill your darlings or not include all of the research or make those brilliant folders of cuts for each book it never goes away and did it did it get easier from one book to the next or is it equally difficult to do that no i mean all my all my books were really research intensive my first one because it's non-fiction and i need and i because there's chapters on like democracy in yemen and al-qaeda i had to have specialists in those subjects read it i had to have an arabist read it um and then with my second book that was also fiction but there was a lot of arabic in it um, so I needed someone to check that. I needed someone to check my religious references. I needed, um, I, because it's about an artist, I needed, so, you know, I needed to be with an artist and have him show me various writing exercises and show me what kinds of paints he used or how you'd mix them and what they'd smell like, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, even with fiction, there's so much research you need to do if you're writing outside of your own experience, which I am now really enjoying doing. Any uh, any tips on not getting carried away with feeling like you need to check everything? Do you write, do you have any, how do you keep the story that is your story sacred and not get lost in the woods of research or other people's lives? Okay. Well, one really pr short practical thing is that sometimes if I'm writing in a, scene, a scene, I know kind of what needs to happen between the characters, but there's other details maybe that I don't have yet or I don't know. Um, I write the scene anyway, um, and any time I get to like something I need to put, I will use the copy editing symbol TK for something needs to go here later, to come, mm. something needs to come here later. So there, my first draft of Exile Music, there were TKs all over the place because I was like, okay, I need to look up kerosene stoves, you know, but I'm not going to do it right now because I'm writing. Mm. I'll do it at another time, but you know, describe the kerosene stove, or I could put something in parentheses, like insert, um, insert scene about Hamantash here or whatever it is that, you know, mm. um, so that allows me to keep in the flow of writing. Cause I got really frustrated with losing the flow all the time. And so I could keep the flow if I just noted where stuff needed to go. And then next pass through, then I could work on filling in some of the gaps. Like there's a whole scene about an Austrian holiday that didn't exist till much later. Um, but I needed another scene and this holiday proved really perfect to kind of illuminate a very specific relationship. But I also, I did get very carried away reading about Alma Mahler because it's impossible not to, because she's one of the world's most fascinating people. Although I have to say, you know, when I was a child, I was really, I kind of had a crush on Alma Mahler because she managed to fall in love with and seduce most of the creative men of and Europe. And in Central Europe, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, um, 
and i heard of her through a song by tom lair me too yes that was how i discovered her whatever became um so um tell us all modern women are jealous yeah you should should have a statue in bronze for bagging gustav and volta and front exactly i love that song and um yeah and so i was really enchanted i thought oh that's wonderful that's what i want to be like i want to be wanted by all, all the people of europe um but then you know the more i read about her i mean I mean, actually, that's not fair. I she's just a really interesting and complex person. Um, she was a composer, which I hadn't realized. She was mm-hmm. also a composer, and Mahler told her in no uncertain terms that there could only be one composer in the marriage, mm-hmm. and so she had to give up composing, and that made her miserable, miserable. She really had no interest in. She was not a domestic creature. <laughs> She was not interested in domestic duties or raising children even. Um, She just, you know, she was, I think when women aren't allowed to use their brain or their natural talents um, or their cultivated talents, well, then they die a Mm. little. Um, And and a a bunch of connection dies with it. Exactly. Exactly. And so because Mahler... I mean, I read all, you know, these biographies of Mahler, but I also read separate things about Alma. And um, I mean, she didn't sound like, I might be wrong, but I don't remember her as being a terrific parent or a terrific partner, clearly. But then she didn't have a great life in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, she's a, she was a person of privilege. She was, you know, she, she grew up with, you know, a music tutor. Hmm. She seduced but um because that's just how she really i feel like you know what i feel i'm just inventing this but i just think she didn't that was the only way she was taught to relate to men mm-hmm. so you seduce them that's what you do to connect with men you you don't connect with them cerebrally mm-hmm. because they won't really be willing to engage with you cerebrally um and maybe that's a truth that we are we were pushed to have and maybe all of us are now trying to find our way back to the fact that we can be equals mentally and emotionally yes and we are such a long way from that we really are i'm going to ask you one last question which is if you were able to give yourself as a writer one piece of advice and maybe even follow it. What would you say to yourself? Um, can it be a piece of advice that I have followed? <laughs> sure. Um, it's certainly giving me a lot to write about. Um, leave home. Go someplace that challenges everything you believe about the world. And you will find things to write about. For me, that was Yemen. I moved from the US to Yemen. And there were no commonalities. Everything about Yemen was different and all the assumptions people made were different. And coming to grips with those, also coming to grips with with realizing specifically the ways in which the US had shaped me and my assumptions about the world, gave me a lot to think about and a lot to write about. And this doesn't mean everyone has to move to Yemen. You could just... Go out of your comfort zone some other way. Go out of your comfort zone in a different way, maybe um i don't know just go someplace where you wouldn't ordinarily feel okay about going without putting yourself in danger of course but um i i'm gonna ask a part b question to that having said it was the last question it doesn't count if i say it's a part b that's all right i don't have plans it's good yeah i would like to ask what you would advise writers who it's not that they haven't got things to write about but they are still summoning the courage to get what's in there on the page when we were talking earlier about life experiences and I guess permission so when you when we talk about courage are we talking about like their courage to face the material they're writing about or is it the courage to write it for someone else's eyes great question I think Um, people block themselves in a bunch of ways don't they yeah they do and I think I mean when I 
teach writing and I have in-class writing exercises, which I always do because I like those as a student. I still do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't ever make anyone read them or share them. Um, if someone really Same. wants them, you know, yeah, they can. Yeah. But I feel like it's important when people write a rough draft, just say, no one's going to read this. Um, you just need to, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I wonder, you know, a different part of your brain right, lights up when you write by hand than when you type. And so maybe if they don't want to type it because it looks too official or too daunting, maybe they could write it in a notebook. Mm. Um, and then, um, I mean, one of the, one of the studies I read about expressive writing, like if you're writing about pain for example you're writing about your chronic pain you get up in the morning you write for 10 minutes about it and then you set it on fire literally set it on fire and that's the end of that writing and that kind of frees you up to be like well i can always set it on fire <laughs> um you know it's like once you write something yeah. down it's not permanent it's never permanent it can always be changed that is a beautiful thought to end on it's not permanent you can always set it on fire but to yeah. do that you've got to be able to see it first so get it out of your head right yes yeah get it out of your head you'll feel better you'll be less constipated less like, constipated we end i didn't want to end on a beautiful note i wanted to end on the toilet again so we we will end as we began on the toilet jennifer right. it has been a delight as always <laughs> thank you thank you for talking to me so here's the exercise we're going to offer you based on Jennifer's interview today. Jennifer talked about go somewhere you feel not okay about going. She said that doesn't mean you have to move to Yemen like she did. It can be a location. It can be a time of your life where something is uncomfortable. As a memoir and fiction exercise, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Bodily and mentally share what uncomfortable feels like. Don't tell us you feel uncomfortable. Let us feel it in your body. Let us experience the senses that cause it. And I bet we'll know what that location is and what the emotion is that makes you feel that discomfort. Then do the same thing with somewhere you feel absolutely comfortable or absolutely happy and exhilarated. And those are both you. To visit the writer's gym in real time, visit rachelknightley.com.